welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is January 13th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe as the winter months of the COVID pandemic continue on. Coming up to now on the podcast, Coach Sass and I finish recapping and talking college football for the 2020 season. We recap all things national championship game, talk a lot about Alabama, uh, spend a lot of time on his Buckeyes as well. Uh, and then we talk a little bit about Steve Sarkeesian and Jim Harbaugh as well. So some coaches carousel at the end. It was a really fun conversation. And so uh, I'm going to get right to it, hit the music. And when we come back is my conversation from earlier today with Coach Sass. All right, joining me now, a sad, maybe depressed, but definitely saddened Max Sass. Coach, how's it going? It's going, Dave. It's going. Obviously not the result that I and other Buckeyes fans were hoping for on Monday night, but we ran uh, you know, we ran into a buzzsaw. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, so for those who may have missed it as apparently it was also the lowest rated college football national championship game in a really really long time uh alabama defeated ohio state 52 to 24 on monday night down in miami kind of as as you said it was the alabama buzzsaw of we kind of spent the whole season talking about one not just how good is alabama but two can teams compete with them and can teams beat them and uh and we learned on Monday night that the answer is no, that nobody could beat this this particular Alabama team. Which, you know, again, we talked about it last week, previewing it. It's shocking in so many ways, considering that um, Vegas had Clemson and Ohio State as heavy, heavy favorites coming into this year. Alabama had what many, at least outside the program, thought was a quarterback issue and quarterback controversy, whether it would be the somewhat unheralded Mac Jones, who ended up being, you know, the most accurate passer in college football since Colt McCoy, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Bryce Young, who was the highly touted five-star true freshman. Um, Turns out, not much of a controversy there. And we should not ever doubt Nick Saban. (laughs) That's that's the funny part about it is the doubting of Nick Saban. I, I don't think people doubt them anymore, but we kind of fall in love with other programs, right? So last year was the Coach O LSU Love Fest, right? Clemson's been really good. Hey, is Dabo the best coach in, in the country? Clemson, you know, they're winning so many games. They're really competing and beating Alabama. Ohio State with with Ryan Day, we kind of fall in love with these different storylines, these different coaches, these different programs. But Alabama just like is always there, and they are always there to remind us all that they are still king of the hill. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say it's not sexy, but it's just consistent. But it is sexy and consistent, right? Like, you know, it's sexy winning <laughs> seven national championships for Nick Saban, like. Um, when people say, oh, like, all steak, no sizzle. No, like, there's steak and sizzle there. I don't know how many more um, possible, uh, you know, comparisons or axioms or idioms mm-hmm. or whatever the right word is. But, 
uh, it, it all fixed him. And it was it was rare to see after the game too. So Alabama, they win. Obviously, Mac Jones, who is known as a very jovial guy around the program, he's you know biggest smile on his face. They're all so excited, right? They win the national championship. It was weird to see Nick Saban smiling and happy and joking around too, because he's he's the same guy who a few years ago when they won a national championship said that like winning of the national championship set him back on recruiting. Right, but that that was sort of a troll. Okay, his he looked so happy winning after winning that game that maybe maybe he understood just how special this team was in a way that we didn't until they went out and proved it on, on Monday night. Potentially. And I think it's also just how heavy this season was and how unique this season was yeah. in a lot of, right. Just getting to the end of it felt like a success. Um, True. Even for the teams that didn't go undefeated and absolutely run through, um, you know, what most people consider to be the second best team in the country, though I assume that, considers to be the 11th best <laughs> so uh, you know when, when you sort of finish it and finish it with that flourish I, I would imagine it's not just joy but it's relief true um, yeah and i think that's an interesting combination so 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 getting into the game itself i feel like i did a bad job as a podcast host last week not spending enough time on Devonte smith um Truthfully, because I didn't know what else there was to say except that he was the Heisman Trophy winner and unbelievable single-handedly won the Notre Dame game, basically. And I had assumed that Notre Dame or that Ohio State would have spent the majority of their game planning on Devontae Smith. And what he proved is that he's the best wide receiver or the best, he had the best wide receiver season in the history of college football. He had 12 catches, 215 yards, and three touchdowns in about two and a half quarters because he hurt his hand and uh, left the game and, and didn't return, partially because they were up by so many points they didn't need him. But Devontae Smith basically won the game in, in the first half. Again, like, what a season for Devontae Smith. I How many more adjectives can we use to describe his pure awesomeness? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all of the adjectives. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, Roger Sherman, who writes for The Ringer, had an amazing uh, tweet. Uh, so two Heisman Trophy winners had been wide receivers prior to Devonta Smith. It was Tim Brown and Desmond Howard. And their combined stats from the seasons they won the Heisman were 1,831 yards and 22 touchdowns. Uh, Devonta Smith, and this was at halftime of the game uh, when we didn't know if he was coming back or not, 1,856 yards, 23 touchdowns. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, and, 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 you know, for, for, for the old people who are, you know, back in my day, the sport was better. You could say, yes, the game has changed a lot and teams are throwing the ball a lot more. But, it's still absurd. Like you could still recognize the absurdity of his season this past year, even if you're one of those get off my lawn. The '80s and '90s were were better, which we're not going to get into. But as an Ohio State fan, 
just what was it like watch or watching your team get Devontae? Um, frustrating, frustrating. Um, I think that, I think that in a lot of ways, it, it felt like there was gonna have to be something done, um, sort of drastic and different in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it in the Clemson game where in Ohio State beat Clemson, and it felt like Ohio State's defensive line was just absolutely moving Clemson's offensive line every possession. And, you know, obviously the wide receivers for Clemson are not nearly as good as Devonta Smith, but Trevor Lawrence was clearly unsettled and, and didn't get his feet set the way Mac Jones did. I think, um, you know, certainly not having Tommy Togiai and Tyreek Smith, their starting defensive tackle and defensive end, respectively, for Ohio State, didn't help. But ultimately, it felt like the bigger difference was just that whatever it was on the back end wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like I admittedly am not a defensive coordinator. Yeah. Um, so I don't know enough of what needs to be done. But Sean Wade was heralded you know if he had left after last season he he was expected to be a late first round pick in the nfl draft he came back to school this year and frankly lost himself quite a bit of money and the the way ohio state used to play even just last year when they had jeff okuda Mm -hmm. jeff okuda could shut down a Devontae smith type receiver or at least contain him and that's why Jeff Okuda was the number three overall pick in the draft of the Detroit Lions. He's special. Ohio State thought Sean Wade was going to be that guy this year, and he proved not to be. So his failings, or not his failings, but the fact that he wasn't Jeff Okuda and the fact that they didn't do more to either roll coverage towards Devontae Smith or you know, do something to be more aware of it is frustrating. Um, I mean, the, the the one clip where Devon Smith runs the seam route and tough Borland, Ohio State's middle linebacker, is stuck chasing him. It's 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 like, you know, what are we doing here? Um, see, I don't see, I don't necessarily have the solution, but I know that's not it. Yeah. And so it's it's funny because. Coming into the game, I was kind of like you thinking there's going to be something schematically that. Ohio State was going to do, whether double teams or really physical at the line of scrimmage with Sean Wade on him primarily. Yes, absolutely. But you have brought this up for, for for several weeks now, and it was not a part of the game that I had really noticed before, which was wide receiver blocking. And this is kind of, you know, Devontae Smith, this is going to sound really simple, but sometimes it just is. And I think it really is this simple in this case is that he is just faster than everyone else on the field. Like, he makes fast people not look that fast. And Steve Sarkeesian and the whole Alabama offense was designed to get Devontae Smith the ball in spaces where he could just be faster than people. And they used him in motion. They used him on screenplays so well to basically just get him the ball in space where he can just be faster than Sean Wade, and they're able to do that because the wide receivers on the outside, their tight ends, were blocking really, really well. There's some rules advantages, too, about how you can block a little more downfield before the ball is out that that you can't necessarily do in the NFL. But they just just figured out a way all season 
once they figured out that Devontae Smith is faster than everyone else basically in the country that they're going to play, they just found a way to get him into space to utilize his speed. And on that seam route that you're talking about, that was clearly all film and prep work by the coaching staff and by Mac Jones to recognize what coverage Ohio State was in and how to change Devontae Smith's route and to get him to, to, to run the route that would get him on the linebacker because if he's faster than Sean Wade, he's definitely faster than, than Ohio State's linebacker. So it was just, it was poetry in motion in sometimes as a coach, we get, we, we fall in love with the really fun systems and the complicated offenses and these different themes. Sometimes it really is just the, seemingly so simple as get the fast guy, the ball so he can be fast, right? Like it seemed yeah, really I- simple. Absolutely, but I think the problem is that everyone's been trying to do that, right? Yeah. Like I, even even if we're just talking, you know, somewhat modern within the last fifteen years, like Percy Harvin was the guy who sort of everyone was doing. Not everyone, but Urban Meyer was doing it better than anyone else with. Mm-hmm. And everyone's been trying to replicate that. And um, <clears throat> I thought Steve Sarkeesian and, and the Alabama offense schemed it out incredibly well. Um, the one touchdown Devonte Smith had where he went in motion right, then back to the left, then back to the right. Um, that was just torture. That was torture yeah. for the Ohio State defense. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really exposed Ohio State's defense. Um, there was another one later. Um, I think it might have been Slade Bolden's touchdown where they showed the replay, and Sean Wade just was like kind of jogging across the coverage and, mm-hmm. and didn't get out there wide enough. And obviously that doesn't look good for Sean Wade, but I think he was just exhausted because they schemed it up really well. Um, I think that there were a number of things that could have changed, right? Like early in the game, it just felt like the defensive ends weren't setting the edge for Mm -hmm. Ohio State well. And they kept, and and actually I thought Herb Street did a good job of sort of demonstrating why that allowed guys to get out to the edge quicker as opposed to, you know, having to bounce it wider and give the Ohio State uh, back seven more time to get to the ball and things like that. And those little things made all the difference. Um, but ultimately the credit goes to Alabama mm. credit goes to their scheme. And, um, the one thing I will say as a hater is that Texas fans need to know they did not win a national. Championship. <laughs> Steve Sarkeesian did a really, really good job uh-huh. in that game, but just so they know Alabama won the national championship. I know Sark is the next coach of Texas, but Texas did not win a national championship. And, Texas Twitter seemed to think otherwise. We're going to get into Sark a little bit later because I I agree with you and and I think that's really interesting to to talk about. But the last, you know, the Alabama offense, we could spend hours talking about the Alabama offense, but I also want to mention Mac Jones because he was the backup quarterback to Tua last season. So Tua had a bunch of injuries in college. He had his his first year when he was the the full-time starter he was obviously Jalen Hurts was his backup quarterback so when Tua went down with the ankle injury in the SC championship famously uh famously Jalen Hurts comes in wins the game against Georgia they go on to lose in the national championship game but the the following year obviously Jalen Hurts was a graduate transfer and was starting at Oklahoma, Mac Jones came in and was the true backup to Tua. And when Tua went down with his 
awful hip injury and then also his uh, ankle injury previously, Mac Jones stepped in and he played really well. So like the signs, the signs were were there. So the game against Arkansas, uh, Mac Jones comes in eighteen for twenty two. Yeah, something though. He played well, but he played well, not true. Elite. True. Like he now he played parts of eleven games last mm-hmm. year, and he finished with just under a sixty nine percent completion percentage with fourteen touchdowns to three interception. This year he raked that up to seventy seven point four percent completion, forty one touchdowns to four interceptions. So he it you know, he played well, but he didn't play Heisman Trophy finalists well in that span last year. And I think that's the important thing to mention. He got a lot better, and 100%, because I was going to say is that the signs were kind of there was that he was accurate last year, 68%. You know, if a college quarterback is, throws 68% completion percentage, that's usually one of the highest in the country. We're raving about him, talking about how he's one of the most accurate passers in the country. He came back a whole basically 10 percentage points higher. And I just want to people to remember that the SEC had no non-conference games this year, so he was doing this against vaunted, you know, the vaunted SEC and SEC defenses. I mean, the guy threw four interceptions all season long. <laughs> he, if Devontae Smith wasn't the recipient of twenty-three of Mac Jones's forty-one touchdowns, Mac Jones had a very, very good case for Heisman, and I think that he has worked himself up the draft boards into the top 10 or top 15 for these NFL teams because I think just from reading pieces about him, listening to to interviews, he's such a jovial guy and he's got a big smile on his face and people seem to really, really like him. I could see him crushing the interview circuit, whether it's at the Underwear Olympics at the Scouting Combine, Zoom calls, pro days. I could see him in March and April when people like Joel Clad and other draft analysts are going on the show saying like, I'm hearing a lot of buzz about Mac Jones that he's doing that teams are really falling in love with him. So I think he continued to prove it on the biggest stage. Like again, what more can we say? The guy threw 4,500 yards, 41 touchdowns, four interceptions and completed 77 and a half percent of his passes. Like what else and is there to say? The whole thing is the, he had multiple touchdowns in every single game except for Tennessee and Arkansas where he didn't throw a touchdown. Like what are the odds that those would be the two teams to keep him from throwing a touchdown? But, um, you know, I think I texted you during the game, David, and it, it, it felt to me like in a lot of ways, he's just Joe Burrow reincarnated. Yeah. Um, and, and he's not, he's not, that's not fair. Joe Burrow had the best season in the history of college football quarterbacks last year. Mac Jones had a very, very good season this year. But there were just moments in the game where where Mac Jones was picking out passes, and it felt like what Burrow was doing last year to Clemson in the national title game. Um, <clears throat> but but again, part of that might go back to Ohio State shortcomings. Yeah. But but uh, you know the credit, uh, most of the credit, I do think has to go to Mac Jones. The one thing he needs to work on. You know, he's worked on so much of his game. The one thing he needs to work on is when he does scramble outside the pocket, slide, my guy, slide. These these face-first dives forward are, you're going to hurt yourself. 
Uh, and he came up hobbling on one of them on like his uh, calf or something or his uh, shin area. Uh, learn how to slide. That's the official advice from the from the double double. I think that's good <laughs> advice. There's not much other to nitpick on him, is there? No, not at all. He he had an unbelievable season, and he played basically a perfect game except for the weird fumble he had in the first quarter where the ball just – it looked like he forgot what hand the ball was in, and the Ohio State deep defensive lineman made a great play to, to poke it out, kind of like a back tap in basketball, like he yeah, saw it and just poked it out. Great play by the Ohio State defense on that. But Mac Jones was like, all right. he He had that Joe Burrow – type of demeanor where it's he was able to shake off a mistake and just come back and just keep pinpointing passes up and down the field yeah absolutely absolutely it it felt like nothing deterred him yes Um, exactly and and and, you know i got a text and you might have been in that group chat where it was someone said, you know, Mac Jones is due for an interception. And it, it was like, it doesn't feel like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, it doesn't even feel like he's due for an incompletion. Yeah. But, um, again, that's what happens when you have a great scheme, an unbelievable offensive line. Yes. And, you know, the best receiver in the country. And also, you know, a running back that it's like, oh, you're going to drop seven or eight into coverage, I'm just going to bowl through you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Najee Harris had an unbelievable day too. He was he was, he was, was good. The problem with Najee Harris is that an unbelievable day for Najee Harris is like the five touchdowns he had against Florida in the SEC Championship. Like His highs are so high that watching him play on Monday night, you're like, I kind of feel like he could be playing better. But then when you think about it, you're like, wait a second. If anybody else was doing this, you'd be like, this is one of the best running back. You know, it's an incredible game. So the he let me put it this way. Yeah. Harris, he, he finished with 79 yards on 22 carries, which is only about three and a half yards per carry. So granted, that is not astounding. But watching it, Ohio State's run defense is very, very good. Their pass defense, clearly not very good. Their run defense is incredibly stout. Mm-hmm. And it felt like they never brought Matt, uh, Najee Harris down on first contact. No, And yeah. it felt like if Najee Harris was not as good as he was, instead of 22 carries for 79 yards, he probably finishes with 22 carries for 49 yards. <laughs> yeah. Because the number of times they got him wrapped up in the backfield and he still managed to squeak out three yards positive was unbelievable yeah he he had a great game he'll be a nfl draft pick flipping over to your team to the buckeyes justin field struggled in in this one you know unknown about how much his injury from the hit he took from james skalski against clemson was affecting him but he finished the day 17 for 33 with 194 yards and a touchdown he was very effective on the ground. He was able to mm-hmm. to get, I think, over close to seventy yards on on the ground as well. What did you think of Justin Fields' performance? I thought he was fine. Mm-hmm. I thought he was fine. Um, he he, you know, he he didn't do the weird Justin Fields thing that he did against Northwestern, for example, when he was yeah. just randomly throwing the ball to the defense and things like <laughs> that. But <clears throat> he clearly wasn't as pinpoint as he was in the Clemson game. He wasn't as pinpoint as he was um, in a couple other games. You know, the play that really stands out for me, and this is 
just such a minor example, but there was a play, I think it might have been in the second half, maybe it was late in the second quarter, where Ohio State was in the red zone and Fields was, it was sort of a scramble drill and Julian Fleming, who's who's a, a, a terrific freshman receiver, was running right to left as Fields was running left to right and Fields like threw the ball, you know in Madden how you could sort of choose like normal pass, lob pass, bullet pass? Yeah. Fields chose like super duper bullet pass from like five yards away and just like threw it behind Fleming and it, it you know I think Ohio State I'm trying to think if that was a drive where they ended up kicking the field goal from yes, the six it was it was I, yeah and, and it felt like you know if Fields makes a better pass there that's a touchdown that's seven we're tied 21 21 yeah and and you feel a lot better going the rest of the game and that play sort of summed it up for me um I think there's bigger issues like the fact that Justin Fields was Ohio state's leading rusher on the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously we'll talk about Trey Sermon, I'm sure, which was not helpful. (laughs) Um, But, but I thought Fields looked good, not great. And he also got hurt a little bit in the sense that he had two, what I thought were excellent passes that were, uh, one was called the touchdown on the field to Jack, Jackson Smith and Jigba that was then overturned in replay mm-hmm. and one was called an incompletion to Chris Olave um, that was confirmed in uh, replay as well and I think they made the right call in replay both times but it could have gone the other way you know what yeah. I mean mm-hmm. For um, sure. it, they were close and my point is like those were two elite throws by fields and two elite plays by fields and all of a sudden you know it, 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 and I understand it doesn't necessarily work like this but if he finishes with you know 250 yards and three touchdowns because of those plays all of a sudden we're saying you know fields did everything he could have and it just was the ohio state defense but yeah you know unfortunately the stats do bear out the way he played um generally it feels like he played well but not well enough the the interesting part is watching watching alabama's team play and their offense play I know there's a lot of comparisons to the LSU team from from last year, but I think that they're just abject dominance on the offensive side of the field where you you didn't just feel like Alabama or LSU was going to go down and score every time or get in good positions and move the ball. You really did feel like that they were going to throw and score touchdowns on every single possession. And I'm not an offensive coordinator. I'm not a head football coach. But... When you are in that feeling of during the game of, hey, we we can't stop them, that has to change your play calling, your strategy, and the way that you game plan your your offense because you're now thinking we have to score a touchdown on every possession because in my mind, the game was over when Ohio State settled for that field goal on the six yard line down 21 to 14. And even though going for it would have been low percentage, risky, unpopular, you know, I know Herb Street would have disagreed with it, but, but in that moment, it felt like when they kicked the field goal and they made it, but it felt like in that moment, it was like, okay, Alabama was going to score more touchdowns and like, you need to score touchdowns. Like at that moment of, of the game, it didn't feel like Ohio state, could or would ever stop Alabama. And that just has to affect your your play calling. And just I'm wondering just just for you watching them on offense, 
you got to feel like, hey, we got to take some some shots here. We, we got to move the ball faster down the field because we have to keep up with them. Uh, absolutely. I do think the Trey Sermon thing, uh, the injury, mm. messed up a little bit of their strategy and game planning. Um, Master Teague did a good job filling in, but he's not Trey Sermon, right? He doesn't have that bounciness. He doesn't have that, frankly, like NFL upside that we saw from Trey Sermon the past couple games before this most recent one and I think that made all the difference I think Ohio State felt like if they had these close situations they could use Sermon as an option Mm -hmm. um and obviously with that off the off the board they they had to change I'm not sure they did a great job adapting um you know the only way that the game wasn't going to be over when they kicked that field goal was if they had immediately come back and gotten a stop on the next drive and they didn't yeah and I think the game planning issue was a challenge on offense, but I think it was a bigger issue on defense. The way it looked to me was that the game plan was sort of to play. And Kirk Herbstreit kept using the term "bend but don't break," "bend but don't break." Yeah, and and that's obviously a really good way to phrase it. But I think Ohio State's game plan was also, you know, not to bend on the big third down plays, and they knew that they could let up a couple first downs, but if they could get a decisive stop and it just felt like every time they had a chance to get a decisive stop, they missed a key tackle. And, you know, last year's Ohio state team, which, which, you know, obviously lost in the semifinals to Clemson was one of the best tackling teams in recent Ohio state history. I mean, they were, they missed something like only four or five tackles a game, which is ridiculous. My guess is if you look at the, the numbers and I don't have it in front of me, but if you look at missed tackles, my guess is it was closer to 15 in this game for Ohio State. And it just felt like it came on every major possession or every major critical down. Um, and, and, and I think the momentum matters because the defense gets queued up for mm-hmm. and hyped up for this. Like, OK, if we can get this stop, then all of a sudden it's like you're this close, you know but we can't get them down on first contact. Now it's like, oh, we got to guard another three plays. And I think that mental letdown is where Alabama just punishes you. And and Alabama set the tone really early. Alabama went was two for two on fourth down in the games. Ohio State was 0 for two, but but the second one was, you know, late in the game when, when they had to go for it. But Bama went for it on fourth down both times in the first quarter. And the first one was a fourth down, basically on the goal line. Najee Harris, boom, touchdown. The second time they were in the red zone, Najee Harris, boom, first down, like the next play or the play after, touchdown. Bama set the tone early, too, saying, we don't think you can stop us. And that was a bold thing to do, you know, generally, instead of just taking the points, right, and playing it safe. But they 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 forced Ohio State we you know in basketball we talk about all the time about who's going to control the the tempo of the game and it felt like Alabama forced Ohio State to play at their tempo and to match what they were doing instead of Alabama having to adjust to Ohio State and you mentioned it, a big reason for that is Trey Sermon got injured on his first carry it seemed like some type of arm injury if i remember what Maria Taylor was was saying correctly on the sideline yeah or or shoulder injury i'm not 100 percent certain well he was taken to the hospital so somehow uh he got very injured on that play and i was 
a little disappointed that there was no other updates from ESPN or from Ohio State on Twitter, except for that, like, he's out, like, he's at the hospital, he's not going to play. Uh, but it was it was evident that by not having him and Master Teague, that the committee back of the uh, Thunder and Lightning style of change of pace between the two, that went out the window. And, and that affected how Ohio State was going to call plays. Absolutely, and and <clears throat> I think that they did a good job, not a great job, of calling plays because mm-hmm. there was a situation. And, and again, I, I I apologize for not knowing it exactly what what situation it was, but it felt like there was a key situation where they came out and they just ran the ball three times in a row, including one on a third down and two where Master Teague tried to like break the play outside, and um, it was just not an ideal set up he's not that type of back and it, it just it he's just not, yeah. didn't work how they had hoped it would work so after watching a lot of Ohio State football this year and all the playoff games should we give a little more respect to the Northwestern's and Notre Dame's defenses you know Northwestern held this very potent Ohio State offense to 22 points controlled the game and Notre Dame held this Alabama team to 31 points. This unstoppable Alabama team. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's a fair question. I don't think you can judge it just based on score because it just never felt like Alabama, you know, was uh, rather Notre Dame was ever in the game with yeah. with with, um, with Alabama. So <laughs> it the game just had a different feel. Ohio State felt like they were in the game through, you know, at least the first quarter and a half. You know, they were clearly outclassed. Mm -hmm. But, um, and in terms of Northwestern, I think Northwestern's really good. I think their defense especially is really good. Um, I think the better question would be, should we be saying Indiana's legit? Yes. I think that answer is yes. Indiana got the short end of the stick with the college football playoff rankings because their starting quarterback, who was awesome all season, uh, Penix, he he got injured and was out for the rest of the season. So the, the even though they were definitely better than whatever they finished as like the 11th or 12th or 13th best team in the final college football playoff rankings before the semifinals, they were if they were healthy, if they had their healthy quarterback, they were they were an Iowa State level team, right? Like yeah, should be seventh or eighth. Really good team. Yeah. Like, there's clearly look. Ohio State clearly deserved to be in mm-hmm. the playoffs and in the national championship game. Um, I think that's clear. I, I think there's just clearly a step down in that second or third tier, whatever it is. And I think mm-hmm. Indiana proved that they're actually in that tier. Um, at least they were this year, as opposed to where they had been for the longest time, which was the bottom of the barrel. Yes. Alabama got, uh, sorry, Ohio State got Alabama. It was not the first <laughs> time it's happened, and it won't be the last time it, it happens, as, as long as Nick Saban is is the coach. And flipping back over to what to, to Nick Saban and the, 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 the Alabama team is, we've talked about this, and, and I keep harping on it, and I'm really surprised that there isn't more discussion of this on the broadcast uh, 
which is just how Alabama is a completely different offensive football team in 2020 than they were in 2012 or 2013 and that Nick Saban, who if he had retired in 2012 or 2013 after beating Notre Dame for that national championship, he would have gone down as maybe even still the best college football coach ever. The game evolved around him. Different SEC teams were running the spread, run-pass option, and competing with him and beating him. Nick Saban, to his immense credit, and not a lot of coaches who do this, especially coaches who have been as successful as him for so long playing a certain way, he adapted. He adapted and modernized to what where the game was going, and they are now at the pinnacle of elite, modern, high-flying offense, space football. And it's really, really, really impressive when when you look at someone who is winning national championships playing one way, that he was able to, to try to, to, to really not like swallow his pride, but say, we have to change. What these other teams are doing is better than the way that we're playing. I agree with that. I think in a lot of ways, Kevin Sumlin mm-hmm. deserves some credit for that, right? Because Johnny Manziel. He, yep, with those Johnny Manziel, Texas A&M teams, I think put a big scare into Saban. And, you know, I think a really interesting question to at least ask is who else deserves some credit for it? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the list of Alabama offensive coordinators, the answer might be Nick Saban. Uh, excuse me, Lane Kiffin. Wow, sorry. Obviously, Nick Saban. <laughs> but, you know, Lane Kiffin was the offense coordinator from 2014 to 2016, and and that feels like the start of that sort of revolution in a lot of ways. Before him, uh, Doug Nussmeyer was their offensive coordinator for two years, and before him, Jim McElwain was the offensive coordinator for four seasons. But it feels like it was sort of that Nussmeyer into Kiffin era when things started to really open up. Um, Kiffin, and, and- yeah, Kiffin was, he gets a lot of jokes made about him. He, partially because he's done a lot of things to to earn those those jokes, right? The way that he's bounced around so many places, been at so many high-profile jobs for, for such a young guy. There's the inherent jealousy of him, right? Mm-hmm. But he went from being fired on the tarmac at USC, right, after a loss, to swallowing his own pride and being the offensive coordinator for Alabama. And he he got Nick Saban to believe and to work through it because at the beginning it wasn't as pretty as, as it is now, right? They were they were modernizing and adapting. There was a lot of bumps along the way, but it's not just that Lane Kiffin deserves credit and then, you know, Mike Loxley, who's now at Maryland, and Steve Sarkeesian, is that there's so much turnover at Alabama generally that those guys who were office coordinators for a couple years, they're losing tight ends coach. They're losing wide receivers coaches. All of all the stuff on the offensive side of the ball because everyone wants to get the next Alabama guy that it's just – you're right, and I agree with you. Lane Kiffin deserves credit, too, for being the first one, for being the first offensive coordinator and getting 
the program to really stick with it through those uh, through those bumps. But it really just just speaks to when the Alabama program as a whole decides this is what we're going to do. They get buy-in from everybody, right? It, and it's incredible. And then they they get so much turnover. They even the new guys who think that hey, I'm going to be here for one or two seasons and bounce to my next job. Nick Saban doesn't allow that. Like he literally, for all the credit Lane Kiffin gets for modernizing and adapting their offense. Remember, he was fired two days before the national championship game against Clemson before when he got the FAU job. So that's true. there's a reason there's a statue of Saban and not yeah, Kiffin. Exactly. Exactly. And it's everything about this program because they've also changed how they recruit. Right. They're now really in the conversation for elite quarterbacks and wide receivers around the entire country. You know, you mentioned Bryce Young, who will be their starter next year, because I can't imagine Mac Jones returning uh, next season, because it's considering where where he will be drafted this year. That'd be be a bit short sighted. Well, Bryce Young is, as you said, a five star quarterback, but he's from Southern California. Alabama went to Southern California and poached the best quarterback out of USC's backyard. Why? Because Bryce Young knows if he goes to Alabama, he's going to be able to play in a really fun modern offense. And and if he plays well, he'll be Tua and Mac Jones and get to that next level. It's it's incredible because they also get wide receivers. Like, like uh, Devontae Smith was a four-star recruit. Incredible player. But they also get five-star receivers, too. Like, the best players in the country used to go to Alabama was primarily, like, defensive linemen, offensive linemen, running backs, you know, safeties. Linebackers. Linebackers, you know, because they knew, hey, I'm going to basically redshirt and develop for two or three years. Then I'm going to step in and start, dominate, because I'm going to be so much bigger, faster, stronger than everyone else. And then I'll be a first or or second-round pick. Now they're not just getting those guys still. Now they're also getting the wide receivers who say, hey, I can become the next Calvin Ridley or Jerry Judy or Henry Ruggs or Devontae Smith and play three or four years, catch a lot of balls, play a lot of quarterbacks, and be a first-round pick. Like It's just incredible what this Alabama offensive transformation has been in a really short period of time. They've become the first choice (laughs) very clearly, and that's obviously why they are, um, according to the 24-7 composite talent rankings, the second most talented team in the country. The only team more talented than them is former Nick Saban assistant Kirby Smart in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible. And also, you can't talk about college football and the landscape of college football without mentioning the SEC and how much better the SEC is from top to bottom than other conferences. He's also doing this, and they're putting up this many points in the SEC. And yes, you could say a lot of SEC offenses have changed and kind of the whole game has changed, but he's still doing it in the SEC. So for all the, for all the people who are like, the SEC is the best league, which it is, but that it's like, it gets that much more impressive when he's doing it against SEC caliber defenses, you know? Absolutely, especially, you know, they're the best conference in the country. You assume they have the best talent in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and, and, and they proved it against two other national recruiting, um, you know, either powerhouses in this case of Ohio State or close to powerhouses in the case of Notre Dame. Yeah. So flipping over to, to your guys, because we know where Alabama is going after this. They're going to replace Mac Jones with a five-star quarterback. Their wide receivers, who we don't know yet, are going to step in and be awesome. They'll be back. They'll be really good. You know, don't need to spend any time talking about where Alabama will be. They will likely be preseason ranked top three. Where does Ohio State go from here? Because Justin Fields going to the NFL, we're going to have a new quarterback. Not just Justin Fields is going to the NFL, but some offensive linemen, key pieces of the defense. Where do you see your Buckeyes going from from here? Um, you know, I, I, I think that obviously Justin Fields' graduation means that Ohio State is or not graduation, but you know, his his presumed declaration for the NFL draft means that Ohio State is probably now moving on from the best quarterback in Ohio State history. I, I mean I mean at least the most talented. Um so I think the quarterback position is the biggest question mark, but ultimately this Ohio State team is as talented as it gets. I believe they're the third or fourth most talented team in the country per the composite. They are um, right behind Alabama and Georgia with, with Clemson right there. They have, you know, they have more starters in the wings. Like, that was the whole thing when Ohio State won the 2015 National Championship with the third-string quarterback. Yeah, oh, we don't have backups. We have more starters. Well, you know, obviously that works out well when you win the, the National Championship. But the case of the matter is Ohio State's backups, just like Alabama's backups, are also four- and five-star guys. And – I think that's key. Chris Olave, gone to the NFL, presumably. But who steps in? Jackson Smith and Jigba. Um, or Fleming. Fleming, yeah. number one rated receiver in the country. They're going to be okay. They have the number one recruit, um, excuse me, the number one running back in the country coming in, Travion Henderson. He might end up starting from day one. I think that they do need to fix the secondary, especially uh, some depth issues back there. That's my biggest worry. But this is not a team that regroups. They reload. Um, They don't rebuild, rather. They reload. And so the two things that concern me are are the secondary, um, where we have two highly touted freshmen coming in who I think might get a chance to actually play Mm -hmm. um, in Jordan Hancock and Ja'Kalen Johnson. And the quarterback, you have two guys who are true freshmen this year, C.J. Stroud, who was a five-star, and Jack Miller, who was a high four-star. And then Kyle McCord is a five-star quarterback coming in um, out of Philly uh, in next year's class. So you have guys that are going to essentially be um, two guys that are going to be redshirt freshmen and one guy that's going to be a true freshman competing for your quarterback job. Um, I don't think they're going to go to the portal. I think they stick with those guys. I think it's probably C.J. Stroud who wins that job. But um, when you're playing a true freshman quarterback or, or a redshirt freshman quarterback, excuse me, there's going to be issues and concerns there. I think the offensive line is going to be really, really good again. Um, I, I think the skill position is going to be terrific. But um, if they can figure out the quarterback in the secondary, then they should be exactly where they are right now, back in the college football playoff. To be perfectly honest, that's the expectation. Why are they – so successful at recruiting because they don't just recruit 
the East Coast really well. They don't just recruit the Midwest where they are really well. They are a national recruiting threat and power. What, what do they do that uh, that some of these other teams don't do? Like, do they just have coaches that understand the modern elite high school athlete better? Like, like what is it that gets these awesome players from all around the country to Columbus, Ohio, where we can be frank, it's cold in the winter. It's not Alabama or Georgia. Sure, absolutely. And and I, I think the two words that define it best are Urban and Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, because he he did it at Florida, um, and, and then he did it at Ohio State. He took what had been a very, very good team under Jim Trestle, right? A regional powerhouse, even won a national championship in 2003. Um, but he turned them immediately into a national powerhouse. That, that was not a top 10 program now, but was now a top three program. Um, Urban Meyer changed everything. Ryan Day has sort of picked up on it. What have they done well? I think that they've related well. Um, but just from everything that I've read, what do you look for if you're a recruit? Um, mm-hmm. You look for the ability to compete for a national championship. Okay, Ohio State gives you that. You look for the ability to get on the field early. Okay, maybe you have that more at other schools, but Ohio State has shown a willingness to play guys that are ready. And and, and the biggest thing to me is guys want to get drafted, right? Mm-hmm. College is a business decision for them. They want to be there three years, maybe four and then go to the pros. Who's developing guys? Alabama's developing guys, but Alabama can only take 25 guys in a class. Yeah. Okay. Ohio State is developing guys as well as anybody else out there. If I mean, look at the first rounds in the past couple drafts. I mean, last year was just an absolute advertisement for Ohio State. You know, the first three picks, Joe Burrow, who was developed at Ohio State before exploding at LSU. And developed two, even more at LSU. A hundred percent. There's no knock on LSU there. Um, number two, Chase Young, going to be, I think, the defensive rookie of the year this year and probably a multiple-time pro bowler. Number three, Jeff Okuda, the best cornerback in the country coming out of college last year. Later in the draft, Damon Arnett, first-round pick, another Ohio State cornerback who was, by the way, a three-star recruit out of Florida who Ohio, Urban Meyer flipped from South Carolina on signing day. So, what Ohio State has done is they've shown that not only can they develop the five stars to fulfill their potential, but they can help the three and four star guys get to that spot as well. And I think that's a big deal. Um, one of the biggest concerns and, and, and about you know Ohio State's biggest rival from everything that I've read is that is Michigan developing their high end recruits into what they're fully capable of, right? Donovan Peoples-Jones was the best wide receiver in the country coming out of high school, uh, and he fell to day two or three of the NFL draft. Mm -hmm. He was a five-star recruit. You know, Jabril Peppers, Rashawn Gary, these guys were top one or two players in the country coming out of high school. Yeah, they might have been first-round picks, but what are they doing in the pros? Whereas you look at what Ohio State guys are doing, and, and, and I think that's the biggest factor. It's... It's interesting, too, because w- when you look through it, is that they're kind of like LSU, but lesser so in the extent of they they control their home state r- really, really well. And because part of it is they don't have as many threats like right next door, like in Alabama or a Florida for the best players from Louisiana for sure. or for they're, Ohio. They're the 
only power five program in the state in what is, by the way, a, a very talent rich state. Yes, that's that. I think that's something that that I don't realize partially from, you know, growing up in New York City and the East Coast, which is Ohio has really good high school football. And it's a talent, as you said, a talent rich state. And those guys want to go to Ohio State and they make them a priority. And so did they get lucky that the number one defensive end, Jack Sawyer, this year that he was from Ohio? Sure. But they still had to recruit him to Ohio State, right? So I think that it's that it's really interesting that that you talk about the development piece of it because it just speaks to them understanding what the elite 17 and 18 year old athlete really wants. Like, yes, they can be impressed by facilities and parties and, and all that stuff on their visits. But at the end of the day, for, for most of those guys, it's, I want to get to the NFL. I'm picking you. How can you help me get to where I want to go? It's not so much the, the other way around of what schools can do for them. It's what the, it's, it's what you can do for uh, it's is what the schools can do for the players to help them get to their next level to to, to next level. Not anymore about what the players can do for the school, right? Uh, I think I said that right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and part of it is, you know, Urban Meyer and now Ryan Day hired really good assistant coaches, right? Like Urban Meyer brought in Larry Johnson. Larry Johnson is one of the best defensive line coaches in in the country, and was a huge reason why the Bosa brothers wanted to play there. And then was a huge reason why Chase Young wanted to play there. And is now a huge reason why Jack Sawyer wants to stay home and play there. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian Hartline gets promoted to, um, excuse me, wide receivers coach during the transition from Zach Smith uh, and Urban Meyer and that whole issue. Um, He's now brought in the number one receiver in the country three three years in a row, Mm -hmm. you know, including Emeka Buka in 2021, who is from the state of Washington. For the yeah, record, exactly. For geography challenge folks, like that's not close to Ohio. No, um, it's closer you, you to Canada I, than it is to Ohio. <laughs> it, you know, Ryan Day brought in Jeff Hathley last year to be his secondary uh, defensive coordinator. People wanted to play for Jeff Hathley. He developed guys. He brought back Kerry Combs from the NFL, and that's why two of the top four cornerbacks in the country signed with Ohio State in 2021. You have to be strategic in what you're doing and, and who your coaches are. Mark Pantone is the director of player personnel, and he's a huge reason, too. People credit him all the time. Urban Meyer took what was a system and built it into a machine. Yeah. And Ryan Day is building off of that. As a Ohio State fan, are you worried at all? about Ryan Day leaving the program for either the NFL or more money at the college level, or it it feels like to me everyone's talking about Dabo Sweeney for Alabama. I kind of like Ryan Day. Sure. I think that Alabama would be smart to – Dabo's an alum of Alabama, which Mm -hmm. I think is part of the reason, but – like, if you're Alabama, I think it would be silly not to consider Ryan Day. He's clearly one of the three or four or five best coaches in the entire country, bar none. Um, I don't think he's leaving. I, I don't. I don't think he's leaving. Um, maybe one day he does what Saban did out of LSU and goes to the pros, but not now. He, he's really just clicking and finding his groove, Ryan Day. The dude's lost two games in, you know, 
two plus seasons as the head coach of Ohio State, and both have been in the playoffs. Like he's got more to play for. He exercised his Clemson demons this year. Mm-hmm. He's got more to play for. Like he wants that final shining ring. He does. Um, and and the real test now will be this this upcoming season, the twenty twenty one season, and the twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three seasons. Once once it's all of his recruits in the program, then we'll get to really judge too how great he is at the developing, the coaching, when it's all of his guys, because there are a bunch of Urban Meyer uh, recruits still in the program that we can say, hey, is Ryan Day the up there with Saban and, and Dabo in terms of as good as they are, as we think they are now? Or is he, you know, the sixth best coach in the country, which is still really, really high, but he's more in the Brian Kelly, like really, really, really good, but not like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the sixth best coach in the country, not the third best coach in the country, because there's a difference. But absolutely there is. But let me let me ask you, let me ask it this way though: Ryan Day has now been at Ohio State for four seasons. Don't forget that. Okay, he spent two years as the offense coordinator and QB's coach before serving as the head coach for the last two years. So, every single offensive player who was recruited, Ryan Day played a part in. Mm-hmm. Right. OK. The other thing about it is I would be worried if all of a sudden, Ur- you know, about, oh, well, he's winning with Urban's recruits. Well, here's the thing about Urban's recruits. Justin Fields wasn't one of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Ryan Day came in and brought in Justin Fields. OK, I get it. It was out of the transfer portal. And now Ryan Day has finished with the number two class in the country in in what will be, I believe, back-to-back years. Maybe he finished number three last year. My, my point being, if recruiting had fallen off a ledge, I would worry about him winning with Urban's guys versus his guys. Mm-hmm. He's winning with guys that he had a hand in play, in helping bring in. He's winning with guys that he worked with Urban to bring in. He's winning with his own guys, and he will continue winning with his own guys because the, there's no talent drop-off. Yeah. Poking the bear sometimes is just really fun. Well, here's the thing about poking the bear. The bear's going to poke back and tell you that. (laughs) The director of player personnel, still the same guy, Mark Pantone. Strength and conditioning coach, Mick Marotti, still the exact same guy. You know, uh, the the people are the same in a lot of ways, with the exception of whose face is at the front of it. And I I think that he's running the program the exact same way Urban Meyer's running it, um, with the exception for all the haters of um you know the the off the field issues that people want to criticize urban for speaking of phases of the program we are now at our favorite segment the coach's carousel also known as the steve sarkeesian's segment i feel like we've talked about him the last five weeks because he's been in the running (laughs) for every rumor uh he's now the face of the texas program he is now their head coach um i think they did the introductory press conference already uh Texas fans, understandably, they are one of the premier, most historical, successful programs in all of college football. They are disappointed with where their program is now, that they are not the class of their conference, that they are not truly in playoff or national title contention. But just because Steve Sarkeesian's offense on Monday night scored 52 points and dominated Ohio State... You said it best. That does not mean that that exact offense is coming to Texas. It 
it's going to take a little bit of time. Now, they have a talented roster. Tom Herman did a pretty good job recruiting. Exactly. Steve Sarkeesian's going to do the work of the developing and the scheme. But when the... Now, it helps being from Alabama that the pressure really is every year a national championship. But uh, the expectations around the Texas program from the Texas administrators, the boosters, the fan base is that they're going to go 15 and 0 next year and every year and win the national championship and that 13 and 2 and losing in the na- in, in the national championship would be a failure. Uh I think that a lot of these fan bases just need to, a reset on what's really realistic like Texas especially if Sam Ellinger goes pro is most likely not going to win the national championship next year or beat Oklahoma uh for the Big 10 championship. They may but as of right now on January 13th, it's unlikely. But that does not mean that in year three or year four, Sark doesn't get them to the to the playoff. It's all about you have to manage the expectations at the front end of this while he builds his program to well, he, he's if he's doing anything, he's setting the expectations higher than ever. I think he yes. said this that a national championship is closer than Texas fans think, or uh, I want to find his exact quote. Yeah, he's he's back sooner than many might think, or or something. Yeah, he's you know the 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 message is all gas, no brakes. He's already talking about how the Texas fight song is the best song in college football, and he can't wait to. He's fired up well, to start singing. So the, can, can can we talk about that a little bit? Because yeah. I, I think that's a big issue, and that's a big issue why Tom Herman um, had some divisiveness with his players and then divisiveness with his administration. Okay. And the eyes of Texas is, is a song that has from everything that I've seen some roots in, in the racist South, I guess they, it was originally sung by performers in blackface at minstrel shows. And, um, you know, obviously it's something that has a long history with the school, but now in this era where we're very aware of, of how things, um, kind of evolved and and how it affects us socially and and and, you know today tom herman's players at texas didn't want to be out there and sing that song because Mm -hmm. they felt like it represented something bad yeah and the administration at texas said no like it's fine and tom herman you know really struggled in that in between of how to support his players but also you know, the guy who ultimately determines if he's going to continue to get a paycheck or not. Yeah. And so I just think it's very interesting for Sarkeesian to immediately come out day one and side with the administration instead of his players, because I think that could cause some problems. You're right. I mean, so, so Texas is, they have some type of committee, whether it's, it's investigating the origins or determining its, its history. Texas has recognized that, it is a, it is an clear issue for the school that a lot of people have major, major issues with the fight song, which is 100% fair, and I kind of agree with. And Sarkeesian doing that, you're right. What do, what do people say about coaching all the time? It's not about the X's and the O's. It's about the Jimmy's and the Joe's that... He can only be as successful as the players in his program help him to be. And I didn't, 
I didn't think of it yet in that context of, wait, are the players, how is this trust going to work already? Uh, that's an interesting part, point that I hadn't thought of yet uh, since researching for this podcast last night, which is that that's a really, really fair point that, that you're bringing up about how does this affect his relationship with the players as Tom Herman sided with his players and it seemed like the guys on the Texas team liked Tom Herman. I don't know. It it, it just seemed like that way. And I don't know if it's just because Sam Ellinger always smiles, but uh but that that's really interesting. And it's it just it just feeds into to the whole pressure of the program of the like now the fight song is going to be a thing of people will ask him if they win a game because they will win a game because they'll play some FCS school of what do they say and what are they saying and it's going to become a talking point. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a legitimate question. And, um, you know, I don't think it was the reason Tom Herman got fired. I think he got fired because he didn't win enough games. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that definitely caused some issues with the athletic director and the administration um, on one side and the players on the other side. And, and Sarkeesian's got to really navigate that. And um, it's just an interesting way to hear him come out so gung-ho about it early. Um, I, I think it, it'll just be interesting to track to see what does happen next fall with Texas um, and, and, and the players remaining on the field for the alma mater or not. They remind me, from, from, from a pure football perspective, of Michigan. So. Okay. Jim Harbaugh has signed a multi-year extension, I think, to 2026. And they remind me of them in that Tom Herman was pretty successful at Texas in his four years. You could say they weren't successful enough. They lost too many close games. Oklahoma making it to the playoff twice didn't help him when he was not in, obviously in the playoff or playoff consideration. But Tom Herman wasn't bad at Texas. The same way Jim Harbaugh hasn't been bad at Michigan. This past year was a down, much down season, but it was weird. And with COVID and playing and not playing and just all of that stuff, you can easily say this past year was was weird and we, we can move on from it, right? Sure. So, but somehow, and I'm guilty of this too, and maybe just because he's so prominent, but it's that if they don't go 12-0... and 0, and part of it is because they've been not just losing to Ohio State, but being pretty beaten uh, handily the last few years, that somehow because they're the second best Big Ten team in most years, the third best team, and they finished 10 and 3, that's somehow below their expectations. Like, it wasn't that long ago when they had Rich Rod, and they were really, really bad. They were winning six games a year. And so I don't understand how. Harbaugh gets all this criticism for these nine and 10 win seasons. I get that they want to be competing for national titles, but I think the Texas and Michigan fans have to recalibrate just how far away they are from the, from the elite and the pinnacle of college football that it's, it's not a one or two season solution as Harbaugh's proved at Michigan. It's going to take time and doing all the things that Ohio State and Alabama's done, which is it's got to be whole, whole commitment 
from the entire program for recruiting and position coaches and development and, and all that stuff. It's 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 going to take time for Texas and Michigan to really get back to the pinnacle of college football. And I think they just need to adjust their expectations. It's possible. I mean, maybe I'm saying this from an Ohio State homer's point of view, but uh-huh. Ohio State and Michigan were neck and neck for the longest time, right? That's why mm-hmm. the whole Woody, Woody Hayes, Bosham Beckler, 10-year war rivalry happened. Um, so I think Michigan feels like if Ohio State can do it, we can do it. And and they're actually not necessarily wrong. Um, the difference is just that like, as Lloyd Carr trailed off, and as Jim Tressel sort of trailed off, Ohio State got Urban Meyer and Michigan got Rich Rod and Brady Hook. And, like, that's a problem. Um, so I don't have a problem with the high expectations. Um, I think it, they can get back there. I think Texas is weird, man. Like, I, I, like Tom Herman went 23-13. and 13, Um which obviously was better than Charlie Strong, who went 16 and 21. But Mac Brown, you know, from 98 to 2013, won 158 games, you know, almost 77% of his games. And he obviously was really sort of everything Texas wanted, you know, after, you know, at least since Daryl, Daryl Royal in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But it feels like everyone's trying to live up to the Mac Brown era. And I think that by the way, includes the end of Mac Brown's tenure. He was trying to live up to himself in a lot of ways. That 2008 version of him. Um, I don't see why Texas should have lower expectations. I just think I don't necessarily see why Michigan should have lower expectations. I think that I agree that there's a process to it. Um, but if you don't feel like that process is taking you towards where you should reasonably expect to be, then, you know, go find your Lincoln Riley if you're Texas, because that's obviously what they're competing against. You're right that they should have high expectations for their programs, their players, their coaches, but it feels, to me at least, unrealistic in the timeline of their expectations. That Okay, that I agree with. That, that I would agree with that they think that by hiring Steve Sarkeesian, they're going to have a Heisman Trophy, three Heisman Trophy finalists next season. That is... I completely agree with you, but just to the Michigan thing, like, I think the tantalizing thing about Jim Harbaugh is that he was, you know, a one-yard JT Barrett spot away from making college football playoffs. Yes, he he was a referee spot away from making the college football playoff. Like, Tom Herman, you know, has not been great, but, like, that 2018 season where, you know, they went 10-4, and four, including, I believe, beating the heck out of Georgia in the Sugar Bowl, like, that sort of the tantalizing idea of, like, oh, my God, this could be yeah. what, what we are every year. Um, you know, I don't have the game log. I think one of those losses that year was to Maryland, which is obviously a huge issue. But, like, they finished in the top ten in Tom Herman's second year. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, he, he, he couldn't live up to that, and that was the problem. It was almost as if 
if he had sort of switched years, if he had finished, you know, you know, eight and five his second year instead of his third year, and then seven and three his third year instead of this year, and then move that, you know, ten win season to this year, people would be saying he'd be getting an extension. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. It's it's interesting. We'll see how he recruits. We'll see how Harbaugh continues to to recruit because that's so important for for college football. Maybe even the most important thing. Uh, but just lastly, here, as as we wrap up, you're you know we don't hide this. You're an Ohio State fan. You see Harbaugh sign the extension. You were happy, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I was, and I'll I'll tell you why. Not because I don't think Harbaugh can beat Ohio State. I think he can beat Ohio State. I think he did you know, a good job in this recruiting class. Um, but I think the biggest jump that Ohio, uh, Michigan rather can make is if they bring in a guy like Matt Campbell, like that's what scares the heck out of me. Um, or Jeff Hathley, one of those guys who, 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 what, those guys really scare me. Um, I think Harbaugh has a ceiling and I'm not sure those guys do. Interesting. Interesting. Well, coach Sass, it was a pleasure having you on throughout the college football season. It was not the ending that you wanted for your Buckeyes, but to make it to the national championship in this crazy, crazy, crazy season um, is an accomplishment in it in its own right. So uh, congratulations to you and, and Buckeye Nation, and uh, looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. It was fun to have college football back. It gave us a little bit of normalcy in uh, uh, the anti-normal year. Couldn't say it better myself. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.